feel I feel a little bit more exposed than normal standing here. Uh, Batman is um, pretty popular. The Batman today, however, known as the Dark Knight, um, is almost kind of an anti-hero. Not quite, but he's quite pretty dark uh, in his Hollywood appearances. When I was uh, growing up. It was a different kind of uh, experience of Batman. It was the Adam West Batman of the 1960s. And um, can, can anyone identify? Anyone younger than me? Just, just me. <laughs> another kindy out there. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Um, wow. Well, you have to YouTube it. I mean, you don't have to, but it will give some better context. But in, in that, it's almost uh, a spoof of, of superhero. And uh, Robin, his sidekick, of course, has this phrase, holy everything. Holy car, Batman. Holy cow, Batman. Holy moly, Batman. Holy, holy joker, Batman. What a, what a, he just, holy everything. Well, my brother and I, we kind of picked up on this, this phraseology and we started very briefly uh, to speak that way. And Mother was very quick to stop that. There's only one holy, and it is God. So uh, I, I have since then had a bit of an aversion to do that. In fact, I was even reluctant to share the illustration because I didn't want to make Mother unhappy. Um, or the Lord, right? We do, we do uh, have an image, as we've read from Exodus 32, a picture of not a holy cow, uh, an alternative, and probably a calf, and probably not just a calf as we would think of a uh, a happy calf skipping through the, the fields in springtime, um, we probably have envisioned more of a bull, a virile bull, maybe something more like you would see on Wall Street, right? That kind of a, a stance, power, virility. And that is the image that they have here. And of course, why do we think about a bull market, right? We, we want good economic Prosperity. We want economic fertility. We want economic virility. And so we too use the same kind of image. Well, we're working through Exodus, and, and those of you get to, to jump in with us partway through, and what, what, a, what a unique opportunity. You come to this infamous passage that we in the church all know, Exodus 32, and I come with a bit of fear and trepidation as to how to unpack this. But this is an interruption. Chapters 32 to 34 form an interruption within the sequence. God has conscripted his people to build a tabernacle, to build a house for himself. The real God's house. This is not God's house. We the people are form his house, his body, his bride. The, the tabernacle of the Old Testament was to be his dwelling place and it was arranged and situated like any other tent would be and even had furniture in which people would, would go and live and use. And the, the Holy of Holies, the inner part, was the throne room, uh, almost chamber room uh, of the Lord himself. And the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim on top, that was his throne. And seated upon the cherubim is, is the Lord himself. And you know, well, We can't see him. Exactly, you can't see him. Other, other nations in the 
Middle East would have, in the ancient Orient, would also have arcs, arcs of the covenant. Covenants were a big thing. And uh, the suzerain, the, the king, would have a covenant that he would make with all the people he defeated, and they would be subservient to him, and he'd put copies of that, of that covenant uh, defeat into his throne and his footstool. And uh, all the other nations would have an image of their god set atop the ark, whether it be Baal or Murdoch or, or some other fashion like that. But Israel had such, but no image sitting upon the throne. So you get this impression as you read the Psalms that they're marching out to battle and the enemies laugh at Israel like, ah, oh, where's your God? Did you lose Him? Right? Remember the psalmist says, where is your God? They say to me. Right? Because there's the ark and there's, there's no image on top of the ark. They lost Him. So they're mocking Israel, mocking the people of God. God has conscripted a people to build a place, to build a house for Him where He would dwell among His people with His bride, whom He brought out of Egypt. And then He gives instructions as to how this is to be built. Very specific instructions, detailed with blueprint of what it's like in heaven. That's fascinating. Hebrews will pick up on this. Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, very clearly tells us that Moses built based on what he, he had revealed to him from God in heaven, the heavenly pattern of the tabernacle. And so it is, is down on earth is the way they worship in heaven. So they're given that instruction, and you'd think they go right on to the construction uh, of this house, but we're stopped with this interruption. Moses is still up on the mountain. He's been up there uh, about 40 days. And uh, this is his fifth trip up the mountain to receive revelation and instruction from the Lord. And this interruption comes. Now there's parameters around the section that that we read. And I, I like to point this out because it's important to us to get the impression of a purpose, an intentionality, an artistry within the literature of the Scripture. This idea of ornaments, ornaments or rings, brackets, the whole of the passage. So in Exodus, where we've read Exodus chapter 32, and verses 2 and 3 specifically, Aaron says to the people, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And then the, the end of the unit actually goes past the chapter marker. It's, it's unfortunate that many of these good literary things happen cross chapter divisions and it messes us up. Chapter 33 uh, into verses 4, 5, and 6, the people heard the disastrous word and no one put on their ornaments. No one put on their ornaments. Verse 4 goes on to say they, they stripped themselves of their ornaments uh, from Mount Horeb onward. They never put them on again. This, this idea of the rings, the ornaments, brackets, our passage this morning. But what is this holy cow? Now the, the phrase technically holy cow, actually uh, you could go back to a, uh, a French lawyer Obviously, he didn't use the English holy cow. Or, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm messing up. Baseball. Harry Carey, the baseball announcer. 
I think it was about 1915, is where this really start took off. The phrase, holy cow. Uh, that's, a, that's a footnote that should have been nowhere. So, here, let's walk through the narrative. Verses 1 to 6 of chapter 32. We have the problem of the people of God exchanging the glory of the Lord. Exchanging the glory of the Lord. The nation had promised to be faithful. They told God, we will do everything that you say. Exodus 19, verse 8. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses is acting as this meteor. He's bringing words from the Lord, from the mountain, down to the people. And then the people respond, and then he goes back up the mountain and brings words to the Lord. He gives the word of the Lord to the people. He says, we'll do everything that he says. And he says, okay, I'll go back up. Lord, they're going to do everything you say. They promised. But Moses, this fifth time, has is, is gone up, and it's been 40 days. The text would tell us later on. And they get a little bit testy, a little bit impatient. They go to Aaron. Now, it's, that's dangerous to be the, the second when the first is gone. And uh, it's dangerous for everybody. And, and Aaron steps in. He, he receives it. They're presuming upon the Lord. They're presuming upon Moses' leadership. The people become impatient. And they say, we don't know where he went. We don't know what's happened to him. Aaron, do something. Now, ought they really to be that impatient? I mean... That very morning, that very morning, didn't they just get up, go out, and get manna to eat? That morning, God showed His provision for them, His presence for them through that provision in manna. The pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, was that not still surrounding them, guarding them? And yet, they become impatient. They, they, even in the presence and the provision of the Lord, forget about Him. And they presume upon Him. So, make for us gods. Make for us gods. And they gather all these uh, gold ornaments. And, and within, within this day, they, they now have broken at, at least the first three or four of the ten words, the ten commandments. Make for us gods. And Aaron gathers this and, and he carves. It says he uses an engraving tool. And when, when, when the, word say, the word says, you shall not make a graven image, that's the old English, Exodus chapter 20, we have the words from God, the ten words, as they're called, the ten commandments, we call them. God spoke these words, Exodus 20 verse 1. He says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. His history, this is what I did for you. I brought you out. You shall have no other gods before me. You 
shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You will not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Hate. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Love looks like obedience. He goes on to say, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The image that Aaron has crafted and that the people have called for is, is an idol, yes. But in this, they have, they have yeah, broke, broke this. Um, they, said, they said, this is the God who brought us out of Israel. Now I know our translations get a little confused. They say gods, plural. But what is the name for God in His divine majesty? It's the, the royal plural. It's the divine plural. Elohim. Him. The im at the end of it is plural. We think of God as Elohim. The one true living God. And it's a plural of majesty of deity. And it's the same term that's used here. Yes, in a context it could be plural gods, but no, as we read this, we recognize they say this is the one who brought us out of Israel. They're not, they're not overtly, we might think, replacing God with Baal or Moloch. They're still saying, this is the Lord. This is Yahweh. This is what He's like. Now, where did they get this idea? I suspect they got it from Egypt. Egypt had two primary uh, bull gods. And uh, Api was one. And Menevis is the other. Menevis um, was worshipped down in the city of An in near what the Greeks would call Heliopolis, and it's close to Goshen. And uh, probably not Api, because Api was near Memphis, not Tennessee, but in Egypt. And there uh, he, was, he was depicted as a, a black bull, like Wall Street. Menevus um, was depicted as a, a golden representation of the bull. Um, bringing into it the worship of the sun. The color of the sun. And the resurrection that would come every day for Egypt and for the productivity of the land and a fertility of life. There's, there's a caution for us. There's a caution for us. When we begin to imagine, image, imagine God as something like what we see around us. Something like the culture, the society around us. And we begin to adopt those thoughts. We know that God is love, but we begin to define love differently than 
the Bible reveals God's character and nature. Or holiness. We begin to consider holiness differently than the character and the nature of God as it's presented in the Scriptures. We're in danger of adopting these things and, and conforming to the patterns of the world, assuming, assuming their values, their methods, their goals, their motives. And as the people of God, we are not to be that way. Romans 12, 1 and 2. By the mercies of God, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable worship. And he goes on in verse 2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you can discern what is the will of God, good and perfect, acceptable. So they have incorporated their past way of life into this new life that they've entered into. And, and think, of the, think of the slap in the face of God. Where did, they get these, where did they get these gold rings? Those of you that have been with us for a couple months, can you remember a couple months back? Where did they get these gold rings? They're, these are slaves coming out of Egypt. They looted them. Thanks, Dave. They looted them from their masters. No, they didn't. They, well, yeah, I guess the text says they plundered the Egyptians, but they, they went, hey, neighbor, I really love that ring. Can I have it? Oh, absolutely, Todd. Here you go. God, it says, gave them favor. They would go and ask, and the, the Egyptians... Probably, yes, get it and get out of here. We've had enough of the plagues of, of your God. God gave them favor and they, yes, plundered, looted the Egyptians. It's mentioned three times, actually, in this uh, narrative. But now they had, taken, they had taken a gift that God had given them and twisted it around and made it into something to imagine God by. They exchanged the gift of God. They exchanged the glory of God. Paul writes about this in Romans 1. And the whole section here, verses 19 to 25, is pertinent but let's just let's take a shortcut and just get to verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And Paul can't help but go into doxology right there. The Creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. This is what they've done. Exchanged the glory of God for a lie. But, but they, they've been sacrificing. You, did you catch that in the reading? They brought the, the whole burnt offerings, the holocaust offerings. They, they brought the peace offerings, the, that would be the fellowship offerings, and they sit down to eat. 
You know, they, they've got a pattern of worship. This is really close to the order of worship that God has given them, except they forgot one of those, the sin offering, the first one. I wonder why. Isn't that convenient? Isn't that the way we tend to imagine God, a God that's not concerned about sin, not concerned about my sin? A God that doesn't need to be placated. A God that doesn't need to be satisfied in His wrath and justice with sin. We would, we would imagine a God like that, just like they did here. But there's also a guard for us against formalism, against, against the form of worship. Well, okay, we got, we got two out of the three sacrifices. We're good, right? And we, we can check those off, and so we, we worship properly. Be weary of that temptation. Just because we came and did our ditty, we're good. Just because we recited the words on the screen together that my heart is right with God, that I truly intended those words as an offering a sacrifice unto the Lord. But they, they go, they, they now add, okay, they got the formalism, but now they got the fun. You like that word play? They got up to play. You do like it or you don't like it? You're, not, you're just waiting for me to say you're not supposed to like it. It, it sounds good. Um, um, they got up to play. It, it's a word... Um, it's an ambiguous word on purpose, and yet it, its context is pretty clear. Uh, it's been in Genesis twice. Well, three specific times. Genesis 26, verses 8 and 9, uh, Isaac and Rebekah have gone uh, down to the Philistine territory, and they're living there under the reign of Abimelech, the king. And Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looks out the window and he sees Isaac, it says, laughing with Rebekah his wife. Laughing with Rebekah his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, hey, she's your wife. Like, they're just laughing together. How does he know it's her? Let's look at the next one. Chapter 39, Genesis Verses 14 to 19. Um, verse 14, this is, this is Joseph who's working for Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce him and he will have nothing to do with it. And one day she, he's there and she grabs for him and his cloak remains and he escapes the room, but the cloak is there and she just leaves it there and tells all the servants around what her husband did. Her husband brought this Hebrew slave into our house to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice to laugh at us to lie with me. And she repeats the story to Potiphar once he gets home from work. Verse 17, she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you brought home among us came in to laugh at me. So, when Abimelech sees them laughing, they're doing more than laughing. They're doing husband and wife kinds of intimacy things. 
So the people of Israel get up to laugh. They get up to make sport. They indulge in immorality, and that's what happens. Impatience leads to idolatry, which leads to adultery. And you can see why our society is so enamored and confused with human sexuality. And, and we need to be wise and realize that that's not the root of the problem. The root goes back to idolatry. And it goes back to an impatience with God. Romans 1, they know by the nature of creation what God is like and what the image of God is to be like. But they refuse it. They're impatient with God's ways and that leads to idolatry, their own version or form of God. And that's when the immorality surfaces. Wow, that was the first point. I even cut this down. Okay, verses 7 to 14. Remembering the Lord's promise. Moses is still up on the mountain. All this is going on down below. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Like, you like how the Lord turns it on Moses? Your people, the ones you brought out, it's a test. Verse 8. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I've commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods. or This is your God, Elohim. The one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I, I have seen this people. Behold, they are stiff-necked people. And therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I might consume them and make you a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you, you brought? out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring. The word is seed. And it's singular. You notice how Moses doesn't say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says Abraham, Isaac, Israel. The name covenant name God gave Jacob, renaming him when he gave him the promise of his father Abraham. Verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. 
Moses appeals to the covenant that God had made. He appeals to the promises of God. To Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Yes, they would, they would multiply and be, be fruitful and fill the land. But they'd have a land. And through that all, they'd be a blessing to the nations. And a seed. It's through the seed that the blessing of the nations would come. Moses is appealing to God based on the promise of a seed to Abraham. And we understand from Paul's reading of it in Galatians, it's talking about not just thousands of seeds, but one seed that would come through the one line, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus Moses wouldn't know Jesus by name. But Moses knows the promise that was given to Adam of a son, a seed of a woman that would get them back into the garden. He knows the promise that was given to Abraham. A seed that would get them into the land and a blessing to the nations. And on the basis of the promise of a Messiah to come, the coming of the Messiah, Moses prays for the people which is supposed to be the line through which Messiah is to come. And Moses is saying, God, preserve the line through which You have given the promise to save the world, to be a blessing to the nations. And he doesn't take the Lord up on the offer to make Him a great nation, does he? This is the way of the Lord, and it's not as if the Lord doesn't know what He's doing, or He doesn't know what's happening, or that this is, oh no, plan B, plan C. No, it's the same as when, when, when the Lord goes into the garden and says, Adam, where are you? It's like Dad playing hide-and-seek. Going into the room. And you see the giggles and the, the little socks sticking out underneath the bed. Todd, where are you? God knows. He's testing Moses. Leading Moses and Moses pleads on the basis of the promise. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching uh, to the Athenians and he says uh, in verse 29 of Acts 17, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by one man. And Paul is leading them in a conversation, a discussion to get to the Christ the one man who will come to judge the world. And on the basis of the coming of the Messiah, God is able to overlook the sin of Israel at this time. He was able to overlook the sin of Adam and Eve. Does that mean that He didn't see it? Does that mean He didn't do anything about it? No, absolutely not. But His patience is so grand that when you mess up, he is able to patiently endure and wait 
till you come to repentance because before the foundations of the world, Christ died. Ephesians 1, Revelation 12. Before the foundations of the world, Christ died. Christ is not plan B. The coming of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ has always been the plan. Praise the Lord. Well, verses 15 to 24 go on to talk about the, the destroying of the Lord's replacement. This gets kind of weird. Moses turned and uh, went down the mountain, verse 15, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. The tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, written by his finger. He engraved them. Needs no tool. And the tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua... You know, there was a letter from Abraham Lincoln that was worth 300000 Can you imagine if you found the handwriting of God? Invaluable. Oh, as they say, priceless. Verse 17. When Joshua heard the noise of the people and, and they shouted, and, and Joshua says to Moses, there's noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. Praise and worship. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. It says dancing, but we know that they're laughing, right? He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it in the drinking water and made the people of Israel drink it. Talk about your morning powder drink. And Moses says to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They're bent on evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So, so I said to them, Well, let any of who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came the calf. <laughs> I believe in magic. <laughs> wow! Now how do you exposit that? Well, um, oh, here's where the French guy comes in. They eat the gold. You remember the phrase, you are what you eat? Only, a, only people my age and older know it. You are, yeah, okay, you are what you eat. There's a French guy, a lawyer, back in, back in 1826, and he wrote something in French about diet. And then there's this German mystic philosopher guy in like 1834, 1836 or something, 1834, 1835, Ludwig Andreas Feuerbach. And he wrote something very similar to what the French guy, I won't even try to say the French guy, his, his last name is Savarin. But it's the American Victor Lindlar, 1942, who wrote the book entitled You Are What You Eat, How to Win and Keep, the, keep Health with Diet. And from there, it's, we know it. 
Okay, enough for, enough for a book commercial. No, let's, let's do some more. You are what you worship. Two, two powerful books on this. One is a biblical theology by G.K. Beale. Uh, it, it's entitled, We Become What We Worship. And then one by a local, local guy from here, James K.A. Smith. You are what you love. Now, they don't, they don't mean and intend that we, if we worship God, we become gods. No, but we, we become more like Him. But why would Moses have them eat the gold? Well, because he knows what you worship defines you. Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You become like what you've made to worship. Deaf, dumb, blind, unsensing of truth, beauty, and goodness. Worship is formative. Yes, worship is something that we do, but worship does something to us. So think of it this way. Another article comes out and says, what, what is it that you want? Where do you place meaning in your life? From where do you draw strength? What is the source of your identity? What do you love the most? What drives you? And the answer to those questions will likely lead to what is it that you love what is it that you worship that you value um, is it money or possessions now this is a dated thing concept because the 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 new rich in some ways don't necessarily value money directly they value the time that the money can get them. So books, not that I recommend the reading of the book, it's a bit, it's a bit um, harsh, crass in its language. But the four-hour work week type of thing. What is it you value? What's driving you? What's motivating you? Time, money, possessions, your body? Perhaps when we're younger, it's our virility, it's our athleticism. Uh, when we get older, perhaps it's simply being able to, to get up in the morning and keep walking or to be, have some measure of mobility. And when we, when we lose that mobility by some circumstance, are we demoralized, are we discouraged, are we depressed? Well, that's a warning sign. Maybe it's power to get what you want. To be responsible and control and manage other people. Or intelligence. Being the smartest person in the room. To recognize that you're always right. 
can't admit that you're wrong. These are questions to ponder and consider. Now, Aaron was supposed to be the spiritual leader in the absence of Moses, and instead he gave in and let the people have their way. We don't want leaders like that. We don't need elders in the church like that. We don't need pastors like that. And when confronted with his sin, Aaron blames the people, and he blames Moses, and he blames the furnace. He doesn't blame himself. Now, Moses has them drink the powder to ingest it and go through the natural process of digestion. And so the end result is that that idol is completely filthy, fouled, and not worthy of any worship. What a picture. Verses 25 to 35. you mind if I read those? Moses saw that the people had broken loose because Aaron let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. You, you, you don't, you, you're in the wilderness. You're at the mount. You think, there's nobody around. When in Vegas, everything stays in Vegas. No. The scouts are watching. The satellites are viewing. The enemies of God's people are watching them. You can't hide. It was verse 26. Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Taking the Lord's side. Who is on the Lord's side? I can't help but sing the tune in my head. I looked up the lyrics. It doesn't fit. Come to me. Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him and he said to them, Thus says Yahweh Elohim of Israel. Put your sword on your side, each of you. It might be Yahweh Adonai. I'd have to look it up. Uh, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother, his companion, his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And the next day Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin. And now I'll go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, if you'll forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, No. It's implied. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. God in His grace does forgive sinners. 
But we're not dealing with just individuals here. We're dealing with a nation. God judges the nations. Sometimes it's too easy for us from the New Testament perspective in our American way of reading so individualistically. We, we forget we're dealing with a people group. We're dealing with a nation. God judges nations. He still does. This is a governmental issue. God is to be their husband. God is to be their king. This is a theocracy. No democracy, no monarchy. This is a, a theocracy. God rules. And what have they done? They've revolted against their king. It's treason. It's a capital crime. We need to see it through that lens. We, we see the honor guards, too many of them, in our experience these days. And we sit and we watch with sobriety, with respect, with patriotism. Do you have the same kind of spirit for the kingdom of God? For the King of kings and the Lord of lords? When treasonous acts are done? Now, there can be forgiveness and yet still consequences, right? But, but here, how in the world could the Levites... Here we are. And Moses says, you're going to have to do a tough job. For example, you might find someone who led this rebellion you're related to. Can you do that task? And these Levites swear an oath of allegiance to their king, their lord, their god. And they will do what needs to be done. Now, it's not that we, we would need to go do what they do, but do you feel what they feel? Does it appall you when some other God than the Lord God Almighty would be worshipped? Or, or that he would be worshipped in defiance of his word and to the denigration of his nature and character? Does that bother you like this? This is the fear of the Lord. Are, are, are we convinced, as the Levites were, that there are fixed standards, there are moral absolutes, that God has revealed these truths? Do you see and feel sin to be hateful, disastrous, and, and even deserving of death? The wages of sin is death. A thing that needs to be removed from ourselves. Removed from the people of God. These, these guys challenge our complacency for our lack of purity, our lack of indignation, and moral outrage. Now, the example doesn't call us as New Testament believers to strap a sword onto our side or get a concealed carry permit or license or anything like that. But it does tell us to stand up, stand out, and stand against the things that are contrary to God. 
Jesus says that unless you hate father and mother and, father and, and son and daughter and follow me, you have no part of me. It's hyperbolic language, but the, the principle is you can't even elevate family over God. Don't make family an idol in your heart. But we, we still, though, as God's people, are called on to be on the Lord's side and to wage a spiritual warfare against sin. Warfare against sin in ourselves and warfare against sin among the people of God in the church. And so we take up a sword, not one on our side, but the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The last paragraph, verses 1-6, to chapter 33, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to a land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, the Lord's going back to Jacob, isn't He? And, and He says to, uh, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on their ornaments. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I might know what to do with you. And therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The angel of the Lord is still going to go with them. The angel of the Lord will still lead them. The angel of the Lord will still guide them. He will still make a way for them and defeat the enemies ahead of them. But there is something different. God says, okay, get out of here. Get up and move. They will not enjoy a particular blessing of His intimate presence that He was preparing for them on top of the mount revealing to Moses. Yes, they will get into the geographical land, but they will not enter God's rest. This was to be kind of like the consummation of the covenant relationship. And God says, not now. Not here. You've spoiled it. They're still His people. He still worked through them. He still brought the blessing to the nations of a Messiah to come. But that generation missed out on a significant blessing. That mountaintop experience that could have been theirs. And so in grief and mourning, they put away their ornaments. 
Not only the image that they had made was destroyed, but now the ornaments, the thing that had enticed them about the old way of life, they put away. The gifts that were intended by God, they were to be used for the fabrication of His furniture in the tabernacle. They were not to be used for other forms of worship or pleasure. Paul tells us these things are written for our example. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In verse 14 he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Our place is not to make an image of God. He's fully capable of doing that himself. He sent his only begotten Son. No, our place is to be ourselves remade in the image of his Son, in the image of Christ. As Paul writes to Colossians 3, 9, to put off the old with all of its practices and to put on the new, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its Creator. And he'd write to the Ephesians in 4.13, to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Put away the idols of your heart and put on the righteousness of Christ. So 